Would you take your Bibles, if you would, tonight and go to Mark chapter 1. This is our last session in Christianity Explored. So to those that have been here all along and you haven't missed, I guess you get extra points if we were keeping points. But uh, thank you for being with us for this uh, study. I've really enjoyed it. And we've used the opportunity to look at the gospel of Jesus from really with fresh eyes, as if it's the first time we'd heard it, to help really those that do have those questions, and also to help us be sensitive to those around us uh, who need the gospel. It's been the the purpose. So as you turn to Mark chapter 1, if you remember, uh, the last three talks were about, they were the day away. It was a time of reflection to, to think about how we respond to God's word. So we looked at a, a few different things. Um, but now we're going to talk about the, really the essence of following Christ. And that's the decision point that people come to, whether or not they will make the decision to trust Christ as their Savior. So we look at that. Let's begin in Mark 1. And we're just going to read these two verses, verses 14 and 15. Mark 1, 14 and 15, the Bible says this. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. We just think about that statement for a minute. As G- this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and what he's doing is he's preaching. The word preaching simply means, well, does anybody know? To preach, it, it doesn't really necessarily mean like somebody getting up uh, behind, a, of course, on a Sunday when somebody gets behind a pulpit, they are preaching, but that's not, that, that's not all that preaching is. It simply means what? It, it means to proclaim, to announce, to give the message. And so Jesus begins, so he's doing it, and we've seen him do it in crowds. We've seen him do it by the seashore. We've seen him do it up on the mountain. All over, this is, this is how Jesus' ministry was described. He goes preaching the gospel. Gospel means what? All right. Gospel means good news of the kingdom of God, that God had a plan to bring men and women into his kingdom. And that's the good news that Jesus is proclaiming. Now look at verse number 15. And saying... So he's proclaiming this good news, but how exactly is Jesus, what, how do you summarize the message of the good news? Jesus is saying this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and what is, what does, what is the twofold instruction Jesus gives to receive this gospel message after what? Repent and believe. Yeah, you guys are wide awake tonight. Thank you. I love it. You have to repent and believe. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and what it means. Now, of course, repentance, repentance reminds us that there, while the gospel is good news, it also begins with the bad news. We've, we've dealt with this in our Sunday morning series here at our church, that if it's only good news if you understand the predicament that you're in, right? So thinking about the the bad news, and that's where it says repent. Repentance is necessary because before we can hear the good news, we have to understand the bad news. There's really three passages that we've seen throughout the study. There's three scriptures here that kind of 
explain what the bad news is. So let's see that. The first one you see is on your handout there is letter A. It's Mark 7. And we'll put it on the screen or maybe you'll quickly turn there. But let's look at Mark 7, 20 and 23. And the question is this. In each of these, in each of these passages, what is the bad news that's being uncovered here? So you understand the question? What are we looking for in these verses? We're looking for the bad news. We'll get to the good news, but we're looking at the bad news and the different aspects of it. So in verse 20 through 23, and he said, this is Jesus, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. How would you describe the bad news that is... I mean, we, if, if we're honest, we know this to be true experientially. So how is the Bible defining this bad news about the human condition in that verse? How would you, how would you describe the bad news revealed in this verse, these verses? What's the problem? If, somebody, if, if you were explaining this to somebody very simply, what is the key to the problem here? Uh, okay, Kathy first. So there's a hopelessness. Frank, what were you going to say? Sin in man. So, so there's a little bit more to it, but those are, are right on. So anybody? Yes, sir. So we have a heart problem. And we're guilty. Yeah. So the, the problems that we, the, the problem why we don't do right, it's not because of what other people are doing. It's not because of our influences. The message of the gospel does begin with this bad news that the problem is not outside of us, the problem is inside of us. It's sin. And we spent a whole week early on talking about what sin is. So the first problem is, in letter A there, that the idea that sin is the sin problem that comes from within us. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Mark chapter 9. This is that difficult passage that Jesus gave. We spent a week on this as well. Jesus said, Mark 9, and... In verse 43, if thy hand offend thee, what did Jesus say? Cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. For it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. For it is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. What's the bad news in this passage? We saw in the last passage that we have a sin problem. That's bad news. And then in this passage in Mark what? Yeah, there's a judgment. The judgment of hell. That because of this problem within us, Jesus warns that there is a penalty. The penalty is the judgment of hell. And what I've appreciated about this particular study is that the, the authors who put this together using the Gospel of Mark, they didn't shy away from any of the hard or uncomfortable truths. 
Because what good does it do to sugarcoat something if you're just masking people's true problem and the true danger that they're in? So hell is presented as, a, as real in the scriptures, and that's the bad news. The bad news for mankind, first of all, there's an internal sin problem. Second of all, there's the danger of hell. Now look at Mark 10, and we'll look at the next one. So if you're following, if you're turning your pages, probably just a page or two over, Mark 10 and verse number 26. Mark 10 and verse 26. Jesus just says to the disciples in the previous verses that it's hard, it's easier for a, rich, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a what? Rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, with men it is what? Impossible. But not with God. For with God all things are possible. Of course, this ends with really good news, but there is one more message of bad news in here before that's given. And what is that? Okay, we're all sinners. Yes. So if you, if, to pick up what Carl just said, follow the sequence. We're, we've got a sin problem inside. Our sin problem inside, letter B, is going to send us to hell. And now letter C, we are powerless to solve the problem. It's an impossibility. But of course, Jesus now comes to the good news. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so if you remember back in the passage we began with, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, what is this good news? It says that he went preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And if you turn in, turn to the inside of your notes, I won't take a lot of time on this, but the simple questions are this, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus rise? Now, people have a lot of if you just take those three things, for instance, why did Jesus come, why did he die, and why did he rise? There are people that claim to believe in Jesus. Remember, the two things, I'm just trying to link us back, the two things we began with that Jesus said you have to do to receive this good news, you have to do two things. What is it? Repent and believe. That's key, because that's what it all comes down to. It all comes down to a simple question. Have you repented and have you believed? And there are people who will claim to have believed on Christ. They will have claimed to, but they answer these questions wrong to show that, and that reveals that there's been no true repentance in a person's heart. Because how do you know if you've truly believed? Well, have you truly repented? That's the question. So the questions are this. Why did Jesus come? Why did he die? Why did he rise? So how do, what are the wrong answers to those questions that are prevalent? Prevalent, even among people that sometimes are outwardly religious people or nice people, whatever you say, what are, the, what are the wrong answers, the unbiblical answers to that, to that? Why did he come? Why did he die? Why did he rise? What are the wrong answers to that that people, would, that people have, have come up with? Yeah, he came to, I know the air conditioners are loud, so if you can't hear what he said, that people will say, well, Jesus came to spread love. And that's 100% true, but there's more to the story. There's so much more than that to it. So they'll stop there. What else are the, 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 the wrong answers to that question? He's just a great teacher and prophet. Yeah. That he's a good example, good teacher, good prophet. 
You might get to the resurrection question, and some people will say they won't even say that Jesus rose. They'll say, well, he, he died, he was a good, good, uh, good leader, he founded Christianity, but he didn't really rise from the dead. Now, you cannot believe in Jesus, you cannot truly believe in Jesus and get those questions wrong. Because what you believe, it, the point isn't that you believe, it's what you're believing in. Right? And you, many of you have seen that, you know that illustration. Like if I stood at the top of, if I climbed up into this bell tower and I said, I have so much faith that I can jump off this tower, I will leap and I believe that I will be okay. Does, does, does my, is my faith going to make a difference? Not at all. Not a bit. Right? But... If I know, now let's do another scenario. I would never do this ever in a million years. But if I were one of these base jumpers, how many of you have ever seen these people? These base jumpers, you know, they put a parachute on and they jump off buildings, they jump places. They are not relying in their ability primarily to, to, to take that leap. Their faith isn't in themselves. Their faith is in what? It's in the parachute, right? We can both come to the same edge of the cliff. And I can have a lot of faith, and I can sing the song, I believe I can fly, right? And he can say, I admire your faith, but I believe this will keep me from dying on my back. We can jump off that building with the same amount of faith, but that's not the relevant question. The relevant question is, what is the, what is the quality of that faith? What is that faith placed in? Who is that faith placed in? Right? For instance, you could have a deranged person very confidently with no parachute says, I believe I can do it. I'm going to jump off. And then over here, you could have somebody that's just as nervous as can be. I mean, they've got the parachute. They're shaking. They're trembling. They're just really nervous. And somebody basically has to push them off. Did they have a whole lot of faith? No. But when they put themselves there ready to go, they had all the faith they needed when they put the bag on, when they put the, when they put the, uh, the parachute on. That's all the faith they needed. Didn't have to be great. Didn't have to be brave. They just had to say, all right, I'm going with this parachute. So getting the identity of Jesus right and why he came and the core of who he is, that's, that's the whole ballgame. That's everything. You can't miss that. Or else you can, now this is key, you can believe in an abstract and attach Jesus' name to it. Do you think people do that? They believe in some concept that they have, imagined, and they say, well, that's Jesus. But Jesus is a historical figure. You cannot just decide who he is. You can say, hey, I know this guy who's six foot four, 285 pounds, dark hair, full of muscles, really strong guy, and his name is Ethan Malachuk. What are you laughing at? You can call that person Ethan Malachuk all you want, but that's not me. It's not who I, that's just not me. You've attached my name to something not real. And you can say, I know this person, but you got the identity wrong. That's the point. Jesus says you must repent and believe. That's the key. And that's what we need to pray for those that have not seen the truth of Christ yet. Repent and believe the good news. Now, if you look at this on the inside of your handout, repent it's number three on the top left, in the middle of the left of the left side. Repent and believe the good news. Repent is an interesting word. 
It literally means to turn in the opposite direction, to have a change. Now, if you study the Greek, it's a change that begins in the mind. It's a change of viewpoint. It's a change of, it's a change of my understanding of who I am, of who God is. And it takes my life. This is who I, I, all the bad news, right? People can live in a way where they say, well, I don't believe any of that bad news. Then they're not ready to repent. When you repent, you realize, my goodness, I used to think I was okay, but now I realize I'm in trouble. I used to think I was unloved, but now I'm loved. So the things that people repent of are all different. But regardless, they are repenting of their attitude about themselves and who God and Jesus, who, who, who Jesus is. That change results in a life transformation. Repentance and belief, people have described it as two sides of the same coin, right? So how do you know if you've repented? Well, if you've truly believed the gospel of Christ. Well, how do you know if you've truly believed the gospel of Christ? Because your heart was prepared when it repented and turned to Christ. So when you repent, you are moving from unbelief to belief. That's the key right there. Now, does repentance mean that your, your life, all your behaviors are going to instantly change? Well, no, or else we wouldn't need the whole rest of the New Testament. I've always found that kind of absurd where people say, well, you must not have believed because you supposedly repented, but you're, you're, you still lie sometimes, you still sin, you do this. You do, I'm like, well, yeah, the whole rest of the New Testament is written to show me how now that I'm in Christ, I can change all those behaviors. Repentance isn't so much that every action of your life changes, it's that your attitude toward that lifestyle changes. Right? For instance, let's say somebody is involved in, I'm not even going to name it, let's just say somebody's involved in X, Y, or Z lifestyle. They're involved in X, Y, or Z lifestyle. Do they have to... Do they have to stop every part of that lifestyle to believe? No. They can call on Christ and still, still have that. However, what if somebody says this? Well, I'll accept Christ, but I will never change this. Then they're not ready to accept Christ. Because coming to Christ is the understanding that I might be powerless to change this, but he's going to change it, and I'm okay with that. I think this is a really important distinction about what it means to repent and be believe. Repentance is when now you have the desire to give up that old life. You want it gone. You may wrestle with it. The Holy Spirit may keep working on you. But that repentance is a change of my disposition toward myself, my sin, and toward God. Okay. So, with that in mind, for the last time, let's hear from our friend Rico. See what he has to say. We'll do the video right now. Your eyes sometimes have a funny way of playing tricks on you. For example, what do you see when you look at this picture? There are actually two women here, an old woman and a young woman. Not everyone can see both. If you can't see them, try looking at the old woman's chin here. 
or the young woman's chin here. If you still can't see them, they are there. Trust me, I'm a Christian. But I wonder what you've seen as you've looked at the picture of Jesus in Mark's Gospel. Because in a similar way, as we look at Jesus, there are two aspects to his identity, two faces to be seen at the same time. There's the human face of Jesus, but there's also the divine face of Christ. And not everyone can see both. Some of us, just like the disciples, can stare at the face of Jesus for years, and all we can see is the man. Like the disciples in Mark's Gospel, it's possible to spend lots of time in Jesus' company and yet be totally blind to the divine face of Christ. Well, what did the disciples see when they looked at him? They saw an apparently uneducated man who taught as no one had ever taught. They saw a man who cured incurable diseases, a man who could control nature with a word, a man who took the hand of a corpse and raised it to life, a man who demonstrated authority to forgive sin. They saw him do all these things. They asked themselves in Mark chapter 4, who is this? And yet incredibly, they're still blind to the answer Jesus has been giving them all along. By the time we get to Mark chapter 8, Jesus is exasperated with them. He says, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? If being a first-hand witness of all these staggering events is not enough to make them see who Jesus is, then what hope is there? Who can possibly cure that kind of blindness? And then, as if to answer that question, Jesus gives a blind man his sight. But this healing is unique. It's the only one that happens gradually. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. First, Jesus touches the blind man, and he begins to see, but only partially. Then Jesus touches him again, and this time the man sees everything clearly. Just like the optical illusion, it's a reminder that sometimes, even when we think we can see, actually, we can only see part of the picture. And now we reach a turning point in Mark's Gospel. Will the disciples finally be able to see who Jesus is? Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Jesus suddenly asked them a very personal question here, and this is where it gets very personal for us too. Can we only see the human face of Jesus, or can we also see the divine face of Christ? Who do we say Jesus is? Teacher? Healer? Miracle worker? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Finally, Peter sees it. Or does he? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. 
You see, Jesus knows the disciples' blindness is only partly cured. Although they can see who he is, they don't yet see why he's come or what it means to follow him. That's why Jesus immediately begins to teach them more about himself. It's as if he's starting to correct their partial vision. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That's why Jesus came. He came to die and rise again. In fact, Jesus himself says he must die. He knows it's the only way sinful people like you and me can be brought back into a relationship with our loving creator. And now we reach the next turning point in Mark's gospel. Peter has understood who Jesus is, but will he understand why Jesus came? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Again, it gets very personal for us. Can we see not only who Jesus is, but why Jesus came? Do we understand how serious our sin is and how badly we need rescue? Or like Peter, does the idea of Jesus' death fill us only with horror and disgust? If we're like Peter, Jesus has some very strong words for us at this point. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. If we have in mind the things of men, then Jesus' death on the cross seems pointless, tragic, and weak. But seen in a different way, having in mind the things of God, there's never been a more powerful moment in all of human history. Although we don't deserve anything apart from his condemnation, and although he did not need to rescue any of us, yet in his amazing love, Jesus humbled himself by coming to earth, becoming a man, and suffering and dying for the very people who had been rebelling against him all their lives. He died for sinners, taking the punishment we deserve so that we could enjoy the relationship with God that we were created to enjoy forever. But there is one more thing the disciples need to understand before they can see everything clearly. Because it's not enough to see who Jesus is. It's not even enough to see why he came. Just like the disciples, we also need to see what it means to follow him. Jesus says if we are his followers, we'll do two things. We'll deny ourselves and take up our cross. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The explorer Ernest Shackleton, when he was looking for people to go with him on his exploration of the Antarctic, reportedly placed an ad in a newspaper. It said simply, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in event of success. There is something of that in Jesus' call to each one of us. The message is come and die. Following him will cost us a great deal. It may cost us in terms of relationships, careers, comfort. It may even in some places cost us our lives. But there's a crucial difference between Shackleton's call and Jesus' call. The difference is that if we respond to Jesus' call, there's no doubt about the final outcome. All the way through Mark's Gospel, 
Jesus has demonstrated ultimate power and authority over everything. Sin, sickness, nature, even death itself. He has shown time and again his love, his mercy, his grace, even to the most broken, rejected people. If we give our lives to him, it's not a suicidal gesture. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Listen to what Jesus says next. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. You see, not only does Jesus have ultimate authority over sin, sickness, nature and death, he also has ultimate authority over us. If we try to save ourselves by rejecting Jesus, we'll end up losing the very thing we're so desperate to hang on to. If we really want to save our lives, we must entrust them to Jesus. And having explored Mark's gospel for ourselves, we can do that knowing we can trust him. A true follower of Christ is someone who clearly sees what it will cost to follow him, but does it joyfully anyway, knowing that Jesus is worth infinitely more, even more than friendship or family or career, even more than life itself. What is given up is nothing compared to what is gained. Immediately after this, in Mark chapter 9, some of the disciples witness something that once again demonstrates powerfully that Jesus can be trusted, that he is exactly who he says he is. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Just as we saw in the very first chapter of Mark, God the Father tells us exactly who Jesus is. This is my son, whom I love. But he also tells us how we should respond. Listen to him. So as our journey through Mark's Gospel comes to an end, we're left with three questions. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Is he just a good man, or is he the Christ, the Son of God? What do you see when you look at his death? Was it just a tragic waste of a young life, or is it a rescue, a ransom for many? And finally, what do you see as you consider Jesus' call? Is it a call to come and die? Or can you see that because of his death and resurrection, he's calling you to come and die and live? Right, I just want to take a couple of minutes to talk about that. I wonder if there's anybody that would share a little bit. Maybe you are that. Maybe your testimony, part of it was that struggle where 
you, you came to terms with that. Like it meant coming to Christ, you understood what it was going to mean, but and how God brought you through that. I wonder if there's anybody that, that you'd share some of that. Before that, though, while you're thinking about that, is there anybody like me that never saw one of the women in that picture there? I mean, I'm just like, was like, you, you and me? I never saw the old woman either. So I don't know. I just want to look at that over and over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, did you see them both? Who saw them both? Deborah, you saw them both. Wow. Uh, you, you just saw the, okay, all right. <laughs> Yeah, laser pointer, trace it out. I hear you. So let me ask: Was there? Was that? How many of you 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 experienced that when you came to Christ? For me, I came to know the Lord as a young child, so I didn't have that. Um, of course, we all have to die to self when we come to Christ, but the struggle wasn't there for me at that moment. But from some of you, it might have been, and you and God dealt with your heart, where you you realize, you know what? Yes, I'm going to give this up, but I'm going to gain so much. Anybody would share how that, just I'm not looking for the whole long story, but maybe just 30 seconds, 15 seconds. Yeah, Dad. Well, I was raised in a home where we went to church, evangelical, gospel-preaching church, and so I recognized early on the person of Jesus, knew what he was about, knew from the Bible why he came, but it wasn't until I was 24 years old that, boom, light went off and there was a struggle over a period of months. Right? There wasn't a struggle over a period of months with accepting the Lord. There was a, there was a struggle over a period of months dealing with issues in my life. Well, I, had, I had accepted Christ as my Savior, but yeah. there were things in my life that, and, and still are things in my life that I have to turn over to the Lord. That's a good example of that idea of repentance that we talked about at the beginning, that... When you come to Christ, the desire to change is there, and that can become a struggle. Not instant victory always, but the fact that the struggle is there is the evidence that repentance has taken place. Rather than just persisting in sin, God gives an awareness and he's, he's changing our, our lives. So, people, people know who Jesus is with their head, but they need to know who he is with their heart. Right. Yeah. Um, somebody else that there was that maybe you had that struggle, something a little different. But yeah. Well, for me, in the, in the nutshell, my attitude. You, can you speak up a little? Oh, bit? sorry. For me, uh, for me, in a nutshell, that I had to repudiate nearly everything I had ever said huh. over the course of half a century. Um, That's not easy at fifty years old. Uh, well. It's funny, I, I wouldn't imagine that to be a prolonged struggle, but it was actually kind of the opposite. Um, it was sort of like, you can suddenly see something in front of you and you're like, you can't say it isn't there. Yeah. You can't. So what I had was this enormous thankfulness because I knew that at any point of time, up until that moment, if I had died, I was proud of being mm. I espoused And I, I was well thought of in certain circles that were absolutely against everything 
that would be last sent. And so in that moment when I realized, whoa, <laughs> here's reality. I can see reality. There's no choice when you can suddenly see reality. Right. There's just no choice. It's like, okay, I really have been messing up and I really am extremely grateful and shocked that I can be allowed to move forward from that. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Somebody else that was for you that, anybody? Yeah, Frank. When I accepted the Lord, uh, my life started to change. Uh, but I still struggle to understand things. Things that affect me. All the things of the world still affect me. I struggle. Yeah. But God changed your life. Jim, what were you going to say? Bible study in the gun turret. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. If we could find like one of those for one of our life groups, maybe that would be good. Uh, 
Well, the, the power of the gospel is this, that, that no person gets saved. No person gets saved because they prayed something or because they walked forward in a service. It's when, when in your heart, and I think sometimes it happens with people after they've heard the preaching or after they've had an encounter or even as it's happening, where in their heart that repentance takes place. So it's a work of God. Jesus would say to Nicodemus, the wind blows where, where it listeth and you can't tell where it comes from, but, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's God does a work to, trans, to, to transform. Bill, what were you going to say? If you're not a Christian, will you really know the identity of who Christ is? I think it's when you become a Christian, that's the only way you become. I don't want you to use face to face, become the full the yeah. reality of who Jesus is. You know him in his fullness. I mean, the devils are aware, the, the, the fallen angels are aware of who Jesus is. But. I think I understand the point that you're making. Are you saying this? Salvation is in a person. It's not in a plan. Yeah. We talk about the plan of salvation, and, and sometimes you can reduce that to a formula, right? Whether it's, you know, whether it's go forward in a service or go down a Roman's road. All of those things are just the tools to bring people to Jesus to get to Christ, to know who he is. And that's the ultimate question. And we'll finish with that. That's when, I think it was in the video where, and we've looked at it a couple of times, who do people say that I am? Okay, but Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says this, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. He said, for flesh and blood have not revealed that to you. But my father, which is in heaven, he's revealed it to you. The Holy Spirit reveals to the heart who Jesus is, we repent and we believe the gospel. Have you repented and believe the gospel? It's not about how churchy you are or Christiany you are. It's have you repented of your sin and believe the gospel of Jesus. That's what it all comes down to. Jesus went preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying to repent and believe. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are thankful that we've had these several weeks to look at your message. Jesus, I pray that you would always be, that we would always see you for who you are. Pray that we would grow in a deeper love and appreciation for you. We thank you for coming. We thank you, Lord, for shedding your blood and dying for us. We, we rejoice in your resurrection power. We praise you that you Lord, that, that we can share that. You've given us new life. I pray, Lord, that you would use us as just those of us who, who believe God. Use us as just a, your army of evangelists, Lord. Help us to speak the gospel in our lives, in our community. Lord, use us. I pray that you'd use this church body to draw people to yourself. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.